And I think our orientation in the U.S. is very individualistic. And if you actually look at how the media covers a lot of health problems, it's sort of like, well, what can I do for myself? How do I, you know, use those rapid tests for me? When should I take that rapid test? Uh, when am I eligible for a booster? And it's not really thinking about these problems at a community level, at a population level. How do you um, really address them at that level? Um, and so many of the challenges before us, I mean, I think climate change is the most obvious one. <laughs> You're not going to be able to read a how-to in the newspaper or magazine and then solve climate change for yourself. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word from the host and creator of Voices Unheard. Hello, listeners. This is Dr. Pringle Miller, and I'm joined by Dr. Melissa Blaker. Voices Unheard podcast recently launched, and we are very excited. Three episodes are now available for you to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. When you go there, be sure to hit subscribe. Voices Unheard is a podcast production of Physician Just Equity. Hi, audience. Thank you for joining. And today I'm in conversation with Dr. Celine Gounder. She's a clinical assistant professor of medicine and infectious diseases at NYU in New York City. She's the CEO, president, and founder of Just Human Production. This is a nonprofit multimedia organization. Now, under the umbrella of Just Human Production are two podcasts. Interestingly, Dr. Gounder is the host and producer of these two podcasts. The first is entitled American Diagnosis a podcast on health and social justice. The second is entitled Epidemic, a podcast about the COVID-19 coronavirus. You've probably read and or heard Celine on a few of the different outlets. She's written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and more. She's a frequent expert guest on CNN, Al Jazeera America, CBS, MTV, others, including The Visible Voices. (laughs) Now, in today's conversation... I've asked Celine to share a little bit about her origin story and what we hear and what I think you'll hear audience is she basically tells us her story uh, during her podcasts, the stories she does deep dives into, what she writes about and how she plans to continue her work after COVID-19 pandemic is no longer frontline news. My parents are both uh, immigrants or we're both immigrants. My uh, mother was from France, um, grew up in Normandy right after World War II. Um, so that was an area that was really undergoing a lot of reconstruction, as you could imagine, after the war. My father um, was from a rural part of southern India. His family were um, rice and sugarcane farmers. And he was the first person in the family to go beyond the fifth grade, so beyond elementary school, really. And went on on scholarship to Jesuit boarding schools and then later um, to the Indian Institute of Science, which is sort of like the MIT of India, and then from there to graduate school overseas. And so his trajectory was markedly different from anybody else in the family. So I was not born into an Indian doctor family like many of my friends. You know, I was born into a family of rural farmers And I think also looking at what the experiences were for women in particular um, in that village, I was very acutely aware, am very acutely aware that it is highly unlikely I would be where I am now having, if I had been born in that village. Um, And so also was really conscious of what were some of the things that held people back 
um, growing up in a place like that. And of course, some of that is economic and social, but infectious diseases were also really top of um, that list in terms of what um, impairs or gets in the way of, of development um, in so many ways. And so I think that was part of the story. And then later when I was in college, was really trying to find a way to mesh my interests in science, but science and leverage of, of doing something um, constructive uh, in society and took some courses in um, medical anthropology, um, health and human rights and the like, and really started to hone in on public health as a great way to sort of combine those, those interests. And um, you know, the rest, I guess, is kind of history. For you with uh, your two podcasts and the episodes, the stories, the deep stories, I'm wondering if you can, for the audience, share either some episodes that have surprised you, touched you, some guests, you know, who really moved you and you didn't expect to be when you were doing those conversations and recordings. Well, there's one episode, so this was from the gun violence season, and I think a lot of people think about gun violence and they think about street urban gang violence, and that's actually, while a problem, um, two-thirds of gun-related deaths in this country are suicides, and um, there's a guy by the name of Thomas Joyner who studies uh, mental health and suicide, um, whose own father died by suicide, and he talks a bit about, you know, his father, who was an ex-Marine, really tough guy, and um, talk through what he, in a, in a sense, in retrospect, thought were the predisposing conditions. And it's um, sort of interesting. It's, it's almost like a, a, a certain toughness where you're so um, inured to pain certain kinds of pain anyway, that um, that pain, that kind of maybe physical pain tolerance um, in a sense predisposes you or is a risk factor for um, taking your own life. And, um, you know, his father was obviously in a lot of mental pain um, at the same time. But just hearing him talk about that experience um, – you know, my own father died by suicide. And so it was very personal um, for me, um, you know, thinking through some of these very things as well. Um, so that would probably be one of them. Um, you know, and then also from that season, I interviewed Sue Klebold, whose son was one of the um, perpetrators of the Columbine massacre. And, um, you know, understanding also some of the family history there um, and how hard that, you know, how hard that was on that family, how they didn't see um, and how, you know, you could put yourself in her shoes and and think, wow, like, how did I miss these things? How, you know, I thought I was a wonderful parent. I, you know, um and the way in which she has tried to turn that tragedy, which, you know, eventually split up the family because they kind of, she and her husband grieved that in different ways. And um, the way she's tried to put that experience um, 
to good use and as, you know, as good of use as you can in terms of um, trying to work on preventing um, those kinds of tragedies, trying to address some of the um, social and mental health issues that um, can uh, put kids at risk for um, hurting themselves and hurting others. And it, it really is a, a, a extreme form of self-harm, you could say. Um, you know, that was, that was a tough interview. Um, you know, to what extent do you feel you're telling your stories through your podcasts? Um, to some degree, you know, as I mentioned, um, earlier, I'm very much informed by, um, you know, my own family's history, um, where we're from, um, and so it may not be sort of my biography per se, but the what I value um, is definitely um, very much woven through um, and how I and how I curate um, the guests in terms of what topics I pick. Um, you know, these are things that um, I care deeply about. Right. I. Uh enjoyed listening to episodes from both American Diagnosis and Epidemic and your most recent episode uh, about indigenous health and Native American groups in our country. Uh, one of our Venn diagram of overlaps that we share is actually work in Gallup, New Mexico. So when I was in medical school, I did a primary care rotation and it was set up and organized uh, in Gallup uh, as part of the Navajo Nation and actually part of the Zuni Nation as well. So unless one has left the Northeast, uh, it's very easy to not be aware of what happens on reservations. And you describe this um, in some of your pieces, specifically talking about lack of electricity, lack of running water, um, the differential of health, um, the also the prevalence of disease such as diabetes, alcoholism, uh, uh, dying by suicide. And so I'm wondering if you can share uh, for the audience why you decided to focus on this aspect in this season. So it was interesting. It was around, um, well, 2016, the, the presidential election. I think um, there was sort of an interesting reckoning that was happening in, the, in journalism and the media at the time of feeling like, how did we so mispredict the election, the, you know, who was going to be elected president? And, um, you know, so sort of when people um, started to say, you know, we need to pay more attention to, to you know, quote unquote, flyover country, um, sort of a pejorative <laughs> expression, but, you know, we need to pay more attention to the middle of the country and not just the big urban um, media centers on the coasts. So I had something of a hybrid response in that I realized that I knew some countries in sub-Saharan Africa better than I knew the middle of my own country and um, decided I was going to spend time working in other parts of the U.S. And so started um, looking into contract, uh, short-term contracts, what we call locums. Um, and it was also around that time that the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, so IHME, which um, is now famous in some circles anyway as creating all of these COVID pandemic prediction models, um, 
So at that time, the IHME was looking at health disparities, uh, burden of disease in the U.S., um, and had started publishing a series of papers um, on this in JAMA as well as other publications. And um, as part of this had these really very detailed maps in which they break down burden of disease and death from different causes um, down to the county level. And you can really look, I mean, each of these maps is really a story. You know, you have a map of cancer, you have a map of um, different kinds of chronic respiratory disease and so on. And, um, you know, the very first map was not surprisingly just um, on death and which parts of the country had the highest mortality rates, um, uh, pr premature preventable mortality. And uh, there were some places that would not be surprising. So, for example, you know, um, at that time, Ap Appalachia with opioid overdoses. But there were others that really stood out to me um, as being some of the hardest hit, uh, highest disease. And those were almost always universally Indian reservations. And um, so in making or in, 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 the, in um, deciding to go to other parts of the country, I, the first place I went to was actually West Virginia because I was really wanting to better understand um, what was happening with opioids um, in that part of the country um, as an infectious disease doctor who um, has had at, at that time until then focused a lot on HIV. I had a lot of patients who um, had issues with um, struggles with drug use, but you know, there was clearly something unique to what was happening in that part of the country. But then after that time in West Virginia, I really pivoted and, and focused um, on Indian country. Um, and so some of that was spent in Gallup, like you. Um, I also went to White River, uh, Arizona, which is Apache land. Um, so very much spent a lot of time in the Southwest, but then also uh, went to the far northeast of Maine, which, where there's also um, Indian uh, land, um, trying to understand, you know, what what made those parts of the country so especially um, sick, so to speak. Um, you know, what was what was the driver there, other than the fact that there was an Indian reservation? You know, what were the other things that were happening? What was the history of the place um, that was leading to that? Yeah, it's so important. And I think it's very easy to live in America and be shielded from this part of history. Uh, that's not history. It's actually present day. And for many people, you know, I think everybody's sort of like, I'm done with COVID. I want to move on with my life. And I think that mentality may very well carry over to these health disparities that have been uncovered by COVID. Um, and I'm very worried about that. 100%. I'd like to ask, you know, when COVID and the focus on COVID passes, uh, where will you transition? Where will you place your focus? Uh, my focus has always really been on, on health disparities, public health, um, and that will continue to be the case. So in my um, new role at Kaiser Family Foundation and, and um, Kaiser Health News, I'm now a senior fellow and editor-at-large for public health. Uh, we'll be helping them shape their future programs in public health, um, as well as their reporting on public health. Um, in fact, uh, one of the positive things to emerge from the pandemic for Kaiser is that they are um, growing their public health programming. They are expanding their newsroom to have a formal 
public health desk, so to speak. Um, and so we'll really be helping them shape that. And our podcast will be part of that effort. Um, so, you know, I'm very much going to be continuing um, on that path. I think some of the specific issues that interest me, and there are many, um, but one in particular is climate change and how does climate change intersect with uh, issues of environmental racism and migration and, and health disparities and so on. Um, and so that will definitely be at least one of the um, public health challenges we'll be covering. For the audience that's looking for uh, a primer, a summary of where we are with vaccination, what recommendations would you make? Well, right now, about two thirds of the U.S. is fully vaccinated. That is not nearly enough. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you have some advice on this. I don't know how to explain this to people in a way that they understand. Uh, vaccines are not immune on off switches. They work best at a population level. And so it's not just about whether you are vaccinated. It's whether people around you in your community are vaccinated. You get sort of these overlapping um, protections as a result and as long as you have many people in our country who are still not vaccinated, you are still at higher risk than if, you know, say we had 85, 90% of the country vaccinated. And so when people say, I'm done with COVID, I got my vaccines, I just want to move on. The problem with that is it's not just about you um, and what you have done, what others are or are not doing impact on your risk. And I think people don't want to see that for any number of reasons, but that is the reality. And, you know, right now in the, in the world, uh, some 3 billion people have still yet to get a vaccine dose. I mean, this is sort of the, the broader scale at which this is happening. And where are these variants um, emerging? Um, they're emerging in places where you still have very high levels of transmission. Um, and so as long as we allow that to happen, we are still all very much at risk. You know, and then people will say, well, that doesn't that mean the vaccines aren't working if you're still having at least some level of transmission, even in vaccinated populations? I think this is another one I, I have a really hard time. Again, it goes back to that idea that um, vaccines are not on off immune switches. They achieve a percentage risk reduction. And then if you say, let, let's say you're reducing risk by 70 percent. You know, and then you multiply that across a population, 0.7 times 0.7 times 0.7 times 0.7, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, when you think of blanketing a population with that relative risk reduction, you actually then reduce your own risk dramatically more than if it's just that one time shot for yourself. And how do you explain that in such a way that people get it? And then that's how you actually curb transmission. I don't know. Everybody, like this, People I speak to in this country are just so focused on the individual and how something works in an individual and not those overlapping benefits it is really hard to explain these concepts. Yeah. I am most uh, intrigued by the the resistance to getting vaccinated. I was speaking with one of my uncles in his 70s, and I said, in your lifetime, did you ever see people so resistant to getting a vaccine? And he said, Risa, you know, when the because that so many vaccines have rolled out in our parents' age generation, polio, MMR, you know, fill in the blank. And he said people ran to get their vaccinations. In fact, they were administered at school. You could get them at the pharmacy. Why is this so unique? Why are we getting such a unique response from people? 
Well, I think there's a few reasons. One, look at who dies, who has died from COVID. Um, COVID has hit two populations the hardest. Uh, one is the elderly and people who are, uh, especially in nursing homes. And secondly, people of color. And both are to in different ways, to different degrees, um, populations that are not valued in this country. And um, I think when you compare that to polio, for example, which was um, paralyzing young children, um, our society simply views that differently. Um, and we value children much more than we value the elderly. We value um, white children, um, white people more than we value people of color in this country. Uh, and so I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is that, um, you know, I think this is sort of common knowledge that this pandemic has been highly politicized and vaccines have been politicized. And this is not the first time I've seen something like this happen. Um, I think the most sort of in my recent memory example of this was Ebola. Uh, and some people will, you know, at least remember back in 2014, we were in the middle of our own presidential or midterm elections um, at that time, uh, much as we were uh, in the midst of our presidential elections when um, COVID hit. But in 2014, we were in the middle of our midterm elections and um, some questions around travel restrictions, um, which were really problematic because they discouraged uh, people like me and my colleagues. It was a barrier to going over um, to West Africa and volunteering as an aid worker. I did go myself, but many of my friends did not because they were worried that they wouldn't be able to get back in the country, that if, God forbid, they got sick, that they would not be able to get the care they needed. Um, and that was very much a campaign issue. Um, should, should we have travel restrictions? And in West Africa, they were in the middle of their own presidential ele elections when uh, Ebola hit. Uh, I was working in Guinea, um, and Ebola was very politicized there. You had the president um, of the country. You had the um, supporters of the country's president who were going door-to-door, -door, supposedly doing Ebola health education, uh, wearing yellow T-shirts with the face of the president on the T-shirt. It would be like somebody wearing a MAGA hat or a Biden T-shirt going door to door, educating you about COVID, you can imagine that there was a lot of backlash to that. And that one of the ways in which people expressed resistance was to not do what was being counseled. Um, you know, and so some of that was around washing hands. Well, it's also hard to tell people to wash hands when you don't have running water and soap, but, you know, other things like uh, safe burials, uh, and I think the way it was covered in the media here was, oh, these are these primitive people who have these primitive burials and they're just giving themselves Ebola by doing that. No, you know, it's sort of like um, if you told people in this country, you can't go to church, you can't go to that football game, you can't do these things that you care about. And we've seen that happen. And people say, no, I care about that. I don't care um, if you tell me I can't do that. And if it's to prevent COVID, I'm going to do those things because this is part of my culture, my, my identity, my politics, whatever it is. Um, and so these, this is not a new phenomenon. I think it's just that uh, a number of factors um, in this country, the fact that we are so polarized um, that 
COVID hit when it did, um, the timing, sort of the substrate um, created especially toxic circumstances um, and, and really um, led to our country as a developed country having some of the highest uh, levels of, of death and um, disease from COVID of any developed country. Right. So given what the work you've done previously, the work you're doing now, what you've seen, um, the information you just provided, what things have you found you now value most? What's most important to you? Professionally, I would say um, autonomy and creativity. Um, in a sense, you know, I've done what I wanted to do <laughs> and would then scramble to find a way to support myself um, as I did that. Um, you know, I haven't followed a traditional career path, but in being willing to take that risk, um, you know, that has freed me to, to work on the issues that I think are most important. Um, so I would say that on a professional level, I think on a, um, you know, in terms of public health, I think some of the, what really, again, sort of um, worries me is can we, um, how willing are we to, to work on these collective problems together um, to care about one another, frankly? I mean, it's really a question of um, population empathy in a sense um, that then also comes back you know, I'm a big believer in karma in a, in a non-religious way of, you know, what you put out in the world comes back to you and makes your community better. Um, and so in a sense, like what is, um, is there a way of having health karma? <laughs> uh, you know, how, how do you create that? Um, how do you get people to believe in that notion? I guess that's what I'm trying to achieve. What a great conversation. And before I get to the recent wrap-up, here's a word from the host and creator of Born in June, Raised in April podcast. Hi, my name is April Dinwiddie, and I host a podcast called Born in June, Raised in April, What Adoption Can Teach the World. As a transracially adopted person, I share insights and conversations with other folks in the community, and we deconstruct identity, relationships, and facing and embracing differences of race, culture, and class. The recent wrap-up. So deep appreciation and thank you to Celine. Uh, funnily, funnily, uh, Celine and I have friends in common from the medical world, from the TED-Med world, and we also have subjects in which we're both interested. There's a Venn diagram of overlap with Gallup, New Mexico, uh, health disparities, and really taking a look at what this pandemic has done to America and is hopefully doing to America for how we look to make solutions, provide solutions for our public health challenges going forward. Please take a listen to her two podcasts. And as always, to be continued, see you next week. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me. 
Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.